Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Why Would You Tell Me That, a podcast with me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere. Uh, I should say at the very beginning that wherever you're listening to this, you should follow, subscribe, plus, whatever the button is, you should do that, because what that means is you won't miss a bit of season two, or season three, or season 475 of Why Would You Tell Me That. We're going to be here forever. You can't avoid us. So you might as well submit now. Record uh, and subscribe and like and everything so that we are in your ears as often as possible. Uh, you can get us on Instagram. We're at Why Would You Tell Me That. You'll find Neil at Neil Delamere Comedy. I'm at Dave Today FM. And uh, also, you we should say we are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. Uh, but here we are, back again, loving this season, Neil Delamere's episodes. That means I need to sit back and sound stupid because Neil's done all the research. You are going to be excited by this. In part two, we're going to be chatting to Jonathan Wilson. Do you know who Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson is? Jonathan Wilson, the sports writer. Yes. I the love football him. Writer. Yeah, he writes for The Guardian. He's on Guardian Football Weekly. Yeah. He has written several books, including Inverting the Pyramid, which is famously seen in Ted Lasso, because Ted Lasso is reading it before, you know, on the plane when he goes to <laughs> That's to, to right. England. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll tell you how I came across this, right? Jonathan Wilson's on Football Weekly, big, one of the biggest podcasts in the UK, and he's talking about, he's, he's nipping off in between playing cricket and playing football and covering football to talk to people about, and I quote, how selective cattle breeding in the late 19th century affected Argentinian football. And I thought, not only is he not joking, but Dave Morrill absolutely <laughs> lapped that up. He's coming on our show. This is incredible. Like, it, like only Jonathan Wilson could utter a sentence like that and be taken seriously. Yeah, and don't worry if you don't like football because we'll be chatting about Argentina, we'll be chatting about who influences society there and then the society's effect on football in turn. There's lots of stuff that even if you don't like sport, um, I think it'd be right up your street. So stick around for that. So I thought for part one, Argentinian facts, Dave. Right? Let's go. I'm, I'm a big Argentina fan. I've got one of those amazing Argentina kits from the 80s. So I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. All right, a couple of quick ones, and we'll build up to what I think is the best fact. Uh, oh, right, have... we're, we're, we're ramping up oh, here. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, oh, I've okay. actually I've, I've built it up a little bit, but I still think it's the best <laughs> way to do it. <laughs> okay, okay. Widest avenue in the world is in uh, Buenos Aires. It is the Avenida Nuevo de Julio. That's not bad. For a man like you 
That is not bad. Hold on. I was very good at French, but I never did Spanish. Well, that, but that's fair. But I mean, you know me, right? If I had to pronounce something in Finnish, yeah. I would, you know, find someone online <laughs> uh, who follow me or I'm following them. And I go, I go on a DM them and I go, hey, I need to pronounce this word. You got to yeah. give me, I don't want like the, don't fob me off with the Google Translate audio button. I don't need that. I need localities. I need nuances and everything. And, but I mean, I thought maybe you, you might try something a bit more, you know, what would we call it? Agricultural for want of a better word. Why don't you be honest and say what happened before our computer broke? Go on. <laughs> Neil went, Avenida de whatever the Spanish is for nine. <laughs> Julio. <laughs> I did. I did. Julio Iglesias, the best known of the Iglesias. <laughs> always got great steaks from the butchers. Um, anyway, this thing, 110 meters wide, 16 lanes of traffic. 16 lanes of traffic. My yeah, God. occupies an entire city block. It's wow. massive. That's kind of interesting, okay? You're interested in the world of Buenos Aires. Yeah, I'm there. One of the most famous landmarks in uh, Buenos Aires is the obelisk. And it's like the Wellington Monument in, in Phoenix Park or the Washington Monument in the U.S., about 60-odd metres high. In 2015, I love this, to mark World AIDS Day, they covered it in a 220-foot-long Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Big condom. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> yeah, we should explain to anybody who's from uh, maybe one of those other countries you mentioned earlier on that doesn't know what a Johnny is. Yes, that is a, a condom, a prophylactic, a cheese. A, a, a French letter, I believe. A French letter, that's another one. Yeah. So they covered the entire, like a 60-metre obelisk. It's getting the point across, let's be honest. It is. What a great PR stunt that is. Like, I would have thought that's too successful as a PR stunt. And then every, we were talking about that seven years later. Like, every lobby group in that city is now going, listen, um, we like what they did with World AIDS Day. We're trying to raise awareness for, like, uh, the health of circumcisions. So can we just <laughs> just nip the top off the obelisk? I think the, the men of Buenos Aires may have had to, you know, turn around to their partners and go, listen. That's a particularly big obelisk, you know? <laughs> Most obelisks are much more normal than that one. Yeah, it's not the size of the obelisk, it's what you do with it. <laughs> You'd imagine, like, the lobby group for erectile dysfunction just knocked over the obelisk. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happened. What I want to know is what happened to the condom after they put it on the obelisk. I have an image, like, of, uh, you know, all the journalists, you know, taking the pictures and the TV crews and all the rest, and then the crowd slowly melt away. And then Peter Crouch just pops out <laughs> of the crowd because uh, what are you? Is anybody going to use that or is just 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 you know the things are in proportion? And I was just wondering about. The... Oh, I, I assumed you meant it was Peter Crouch's sleeping bag. I mean, oh, oh yeah, I mean, uh, that's you, exactly what you thought. Yeah, some sort of pupae. Yeah, that's 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 basically Peter Crouch goes into a sleeping bag and nine months later comes out as Halland. Uh, <laughs> Given by the way that you can one of the one of the ways that drug mules smuggle drugs into a country is by swallowing them in a condom. You'd, you'd imagine the mayor just got a call going, This is a bogata number for some reason. You know, yeah, we still have it, all right. You want to do it for what? So we're in Buenos Aires, right? I'm loving this. We're building it up. It is, of course, the home of the tango. Yes, and Neil Delamere. Now hang on. We can't go any further, uh, just in case people don't realize or don't remember, because if they're Irish, they will remember. But if you're, we have a lot of listeners from around the world. You took part in a TV show, which here is called Dancing with the Stars, and all around the world is called Different Things. But it's an iteration of hugely famous celebrities, a.k.a. you, uh, <laughs> dance. And yeah. 
What I was amazed about with this, because I knew you very well when you were doing this, was the amount of work that went in. Genuine work, practice, physicality, all those things that we just all think, ah, yeah, sure, let me just rock up, do a dance and go home. You were so into this. I was into it. We had a cruel and early exit. We only did it about four weeks and I was learning the tango and then we were kicked out. I was learning the tango too. The Boomtown Rats, um, tell me why I don't like Mondays. It was really wow. cool. Yeah. Did I tell you what I said to my mother-in-law? I never told you this, I think. When I said, listen, I'm doing this show all around the world. It's called Dancing with the Stars. It's called Strictly in, in the UK. It's a BBC format, I think. And I went up to her and we got on really well. And I said, listen, I'm doing Dancing with the Stars, biggest show on TV. And she leaned in and she she kind of took my chin in her hand like this. We get on very well. And she just whispered, don't have an affair. <laughs> because, of course, it is famous. For, for yes. stressing marriages. Not a chance, my friend. Not a chance. Two reasons. One, I love my wife to bits. Best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, two, I don't know if you saw the outfits they put us in. Not conducive <laughs> to sexual impropriety. First out, let me just describe the first outfit. Shoulder pads out to here, like six yeah. inches either side of your shoulders. Uh, a bolero jacket with kind of gold studs in it. I looked like Elton John at an orange order parade. That's how I would describe it. <laughs> There was there was an element of South American dictator, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> there was. There was. Well, that's that's a good link to what we're talking about. So it's famously uh, an Argentinian dance and, and uh, well, from the kind of River Plate area. It's the home of the tango, uh, Argentina. In 2016, Mara Godoy and uh, Jose Lugones donned harnesses and they danced beside the obelisk 60 metres in the air. They tangoed. Yeah, they tangoed on the, and I thought this is one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of. And then I realized that we catch a goat in this country in August <laughs> and put it on a platform in County Kerry, and there's a festival around it for five weeks. We, we should also say that this year in particular, uh, yeah. the goat was released from the. Uh, it was too hot. It was too hot. It was really, and and I think to be fair, I think that may be the end of the goat yeah. being. What we call it, encapsulated uh, and put on display for everybody. It's called Puck Fair. It's ancient, but at the same time, we've it's twenty twenty two. Maybe yeah. it's best not to have goats in captivity like that. But this isn't my tango fact. My oh. tango fact is is only a lead into the tango fact. You're the so sensual. Fact. You're so you're, you're, I know. Just, you're just leading me on step I'm by step. I'm leading you on. My knees are bent. I've got one foot slightly behind the other. I'm getting back into the tango again. We all know that Argentina is the country where the tango is massive. But there's a country where I'd argue it's certainly maybe not as big, but it's absolutely massive. And it's okay. a European country. And it's a country what? you wouldn't guess. Go for it. Tango, European mm. country. Mm. Let me give you a clue. Loads of Italians in particular moved from Italy to Argentina in the late 19th century. <laughs> well, I'm going to guess Italy then, you idiot. That's right. Finland. It's Finland. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it was a good tool. <laughs> Tango is massive in Finland. How come? Well, it kind of invaded the country. It came in the 1910s during this era when independence, the idea of independence was growing stronger because Russia was quite repressive and obviously Finland was part of the greater Russia. Mm. And uh, built up in the 1930s and 40s and this easier dance developed called the Finnish tango or Finn tango. Okay. And I checked if this was still right. I rang a friend of mine who is uh, who actually gave us the pronunciation of Igro. Do you remember in the EPO episode yes, back EPO in season episode, 1? Yeah. And uh, it's it started taking off all over the country. The Finn tango is slightly less kind of Latin, less sensual, almost more like a, a waltz. 
what you'll find interesting, because I genuinely don't know what this means, but I, well, I kind of do. Uh, they're played in a minor key, usually. Oh, okay. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, like the simplest way to explain keys is major keys sound happy, minor keys sound sadder. It's as simple as that. Well, that's exactly what they're about. They're about kind of loss and melancholy and, and themes of loss and grief and longing are introduced to Tango. Okay. But this is how big it is, right? There is a festival in a town uh, it's called Sign. Uh, I got. I sorry to the Finnish people. Come sign on, a, sign a yoki, sign a yoki, <laughs> sign sign me up for that. Sign a yoki, sign a yoki. A hundred thousand people go to it. One and a half million people watch it. Ah, stop. It has done five and a half million people in Finland, and if you win like this tango singing competitions or the tango dance competitions, uh, particularly the singers, they get record contracts. It's massive. A quarter of the population watch it on telly, and if you win it, you're effectively Ed Sheeran. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Fintango. Yeah. And here is my last Argentinian fact. Okay, we're building up now. Do you know who Emilio Marcos Palma is? Emilio Marcos Palma. No, full on. I was, I was thinking he's some like centre half from the <laughs> 70s. No, I've no idea. <laughs> That's not a bad guess, actually. Uh, he is Argentinian, and he's the first baby to be born in Antarctica. What? Right, yeah, this is brilliant. So he was delivered at Esperanza Base on the 23rd of January, 1978. There's a photo of him and his proud parents. Basically what happened, uh, you can see that online, right? The other nations that claim parts of uh, Antarctica, they don't want you to get pregnant, right? Apparently, there are condoms all over the scientific bases in <laughs> all over Antarctica because and women are screened to make sure they're not pregnant before they go there for the scientific research. Um, if you are found out to be pregnant, if you if you fall pregnant while you're there, you get flown back because obviously it's miles and miles away from serious medical help if anything goes wrong. But in the 70s, Chile and Argentina had claims on the Antarctic Peninsula, right? saying that's essentially just an extension of the Andes. Now, if you remember at those points, you don't remember, but you've seen reeling in the ears, you've seen the historical programs, massively right-wing dictators and, and um, a military junta in Argentina and Pinochet in Chile. And they're really up in their claims for Antarctica. So the Argentinians said, uh, you know what would strengthen our claim? Let's have a baby. Let's have a baby in, in Antarctica. Yeah. You know when someone says, you know what would strengthen our claim? Let's have a baby. Or says, you know what would save this marriage? Let's have a baby. They're wrong on both counts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is what they thought they'd do. So you know what happened? His mother, Emilio Palma's mother, Silvia Morello Palma, was flown to the base six or seven months pregnant in order to give birth on continental Antarctica. Oh, my. His father, Jorge, was the Argentinian um, army officer and the captain of the base. And then the Chileans start going, well, what, what, we should have a baby conceived, carried and born in Antarctica then. Okay, because then that offers you more of a claim. Yeah. So 11 babies have been born as of 2009 and none of them died, which is quite interesting, which means that Antarctica has the lowest infant mortality rate of any <laughs> continent in the world at 0%. Wow. Do you remember when we did the episode uh, about House of the Dragon? Yeah. And you gave us the fact about how dragon eggs are are yeah, Chinese dragon eggs, yeah, Chinese, Chinese yeah. alligator, Chinese the alligator dragon. eggs, yeah, yeah. The dragon. So that if they're lower temperatures, they tend to be female. Higher temperatures tend to be boys. And we 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 conjured up this beautiful image of uh, the the pregnant mother waking up while her her partner was sewing her into a lagging jacket. Yes, uh, and then we had one where the super sir heater was hotter. I think both of those things would be completely acceptable 
if you were flown out at six months pregnant to go to Antarctica, it'd be like, sew me to the lagging jacket, strap a super serum to my face, then I'll be okay with this. Otherwise, John, why the hell are we doing this? It's some, it's some origin story, isn't it? It's some, it is. You know, people sitting around uh, the, the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin talking about, oh, yeah, um, when I had my first, he was X, Y, and Z. And then Amelia rocks up and goes, I fired out my mother, headbutted a penguin in the face, fired a harpoon at a whale that was tied to my own umbilical cords, and then... <laughs> Lo and behold, in. here I am. Oh, I should say, while we're talking about Argentinian football, have I told you about the time I saw Messi play? It was usually- Let me tell you, I'll stop you there. You were drunk. He said he was Messi. <laughs> he was actually not. He was not. small and curly-haired. He may or may not have been in uh, Into the West. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, I was on a stag. Uh, it was a few years ago, and it was usual situation. You know, uh, I didn't know most of the lads there, and the ones I did, kind of no bored the arse off me but i had to go because it was my stack and uh i went to barcelona <laughs> sorry <laughs> that took ages to land took Age. the, the, there was a satellite delay on the comedy there it wasn't it was and it wasn't your fault at all <laughs> so we went to barcelona actually i went with some of my very best friends and we had a great time okay, okay. and i don't drink a lot uh, but after what can only be described dave as a night of almost suicidal drinking wow we got ex up the next morning to go to the new camp, right? And there was a genuine, there was a, we went through a travel agent and all the rest and there was a letter in reception that said, to guarantee the best seats we've arranged for you to use season tickets, fan season tickets. And we thought, okay. And then the letter said, please don't speak English at the gate. So we took out these things and we realized they had a photo ID on them. <gasps> now, I am 90% sure I can't sp- pass for a lovely tanned Catalan football fan. <laughs> I am 100% sure I can't pass for Monica Fernandez, a 29-year-old mother of two, Dave. Right? So about two hours later, 12 of the most hungover lads you have ever seen in the history of alcohol turn up to the new camp, Right? Trying to pass for Spaniards. Four of us are red-haired. Seven of them are in Mayo jerseys. One of, <laughs> one of the lads has been sunburnt in between getting out of the passenger door and the boot of the taxi when we landed. And we landed at night, Dave. He was moonburnt, right? So we all go up to the gates and we, we decided we all go through separate gates, right? And uh, like 11 of us get in. And Ronan is a friend of mine. And Ronan was still drunk, I think, right? So Ronan, and we say nothing, and we don't make eye contact. We yeah. Think, ah, this happens a good bit here. So Ronan wanders up, and instead of not saying anything, he decides to repeat whatever Spanish words he's learned in the last 12 hours in Barras. And he's just muttering, like, uh, Fernando Ch- Fernando Torres, Chirizo, say it a bit there, right? And he's... Cerveza. <laughs> Cerveza. He's wandered up, and uh, he gets through, and then the, the security guard stops him. This big Catalan security guard stops him. And in English goes, you're not Spanish. Right? And we were all the other side. And Ronan, in fairness to him, went, well, technically neither are you. And you imagine, <laughs> roared laughing. Roared laughing. And then went, in you go. And just let him in. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely And Messi brilliant. was dog shit that day. <laughs> was he? I'd still take him over Ronaldo. <laughs> yeah, I know you would. And you're wrong. okay okay well anyway in part two we'll be talking to football journalist extraordinaire guardian writer and author jonathan wilson about yes how selective cattle breeding in the 19th century affected argentinian football ready to pop the question 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to part two. So joining us on the show now is Guardian columnist and author of many football books, including Inverting the Pyramid and a book our Irish listeners in particular might go for Two Brothers, The Life and Loves of Bobby and Saint Jack Charlton. I'm going to call him. <laughs> God, I love Jack Charlton. It's Jonathan Wilson. Thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. Cheers. Thanks very much for having me. Dave and I got very excited about this when I told him who I was going to have on and I told him how I came up with the idea for this episode. On the Guardian Football Weekly podcast, you said, and I and I genuinely think if anybody else said this, they would be joking. You said you're off to give a lecture on how selective cattle breeding in the late 19th century affected Argentinian football. And I thought, not only is he not joking, this is so up our street, it's unbelievable. It is niche, and then it'll widen too broad. So let us start at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like, that, that's that's a slight exaggeration. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it so, is. Uh, I was I was playing cricket the following Sunday in a place called Shennington in North Oxfordshire, and it's part of a sort of a village festival they have. And the the team I was I was playing for that day uh, are called the Authors Cricket Club. You have to have written a book to play for us. It was a team founded by P.G. Woodhouse and Arthur Conan Doyle, late nineteenth century. Oh wow! This is like the fourth iteration, and so 
when we play them, I get one of our team to, to give a talk at the change of innings. So it was a 15-minute chat rather than a lecture. <laughs> but, sorry, Jonathan. Yeah. The fact that that's the bit that you say is yeah. an exaggeration. Yeah. It's not the subject matter. It's the length of the particular lecture. Yeah, but it, it was about, yeah, I, I, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's taking two elements and sort of pretending that's the whole thing. But, yeah, it is about how um, the introduction of barbed wire to Argentina had profound impact, not merely on how they farm cattle, but also on uh, the political and cultural milieu, which affected how they play football in a very direct way, I think. Okay, well, uh, let's explore all of this now. Let's start at the beginning then. Okay, so Mendoza arrives in 1535. I suppose he's like, you know, Cortez and Pizarro to other countries. You could say Mendoza is to Argentina. Could you say that? Yeah, that's exactly what he is. And that's what he's hoping to find. He's he's hoping it's going to be like Mexico or Peru, this land of great wealth. So Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, was uh, the King of Spain at the time. He's made him governor of New Andalusia, Duke of New Andalusia, something of New Andalusia, which is what they called Argentina then. And he goes over with, I I think, something like 13 ships and 2,000 men. Yeah, he's hoping there's going to be all these gold mines or silver mines. And there's not. There's there's some mud and some pretty hostile uh, people. The the trip is a complete disaster. He falls out with his deputy, who ends up dying mysteriously, possibly murdered by by Mendoza. He he ends up getting syphilis. He he then sort of gives up pretty quickly and goes home. Leaves a small community on the banks of the Riachuela, which, if people know anything about Argentinian history, the Riachuela is is sort of this tributary of the River Plate, and it, it's significant. Uh, later in Argentinian history, when Perón seizes power, it's the, the Decamasados, the, the shirtless ones, their march across the Riachuela, which allows them to seize power. Mm. So the banks of the Riachuela now uh, is sort of shanty towns. It's, it's where Maradona grew up, not where he was born, it's where he grew up in one of the shanties there. It, it's sort of seen symbolically as being very much the, the heart of, of Argentina. But every time there's rain, the walls they've built get washed away. The indigenous people are not welcoming at all. They can't barter, they can't trade, they can't get food. They eat rats, they eat their boots, they turn to cannibalism. Eventually, it's 1541, so six years after they set off, the, the, the people who are left give up and they go to Suncion and join the colony there. Uh, but what they do is they leave behind 12 horses, seven male, five female. And those are the... The horses that, that then lead to the, the great herds of horses of the Pampas, for which Argentina becomes enormously famous. They double their population r- roughly every three years, and this is yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Like everything you've just said there, like in season one of this podcast, we did an episode about the Darien scheme, which was Scotland. Oh, which is crazy, fa- yeah, failed yeah. attempt at colonization. But we did an entire episode. You just you just encapsulated the entire episode that we did. You did the same for uh, for that whole period uh, in, in like four sentences. There's another one of those schemes. I can't remember the name of it, but there was a, a load of um, a load of Scots set off, I think, from Glasgow, uh, and they include the Brown family, and uh, they end up. So this is, I think, in the 1840s, 1850s, they end up moving to Buenos Aires, and alumni, which is the team who dominate the early years of the Argentinian league, uh, at their peak, they have seven Brown brothers playing for them. But they all, they all come from one of these crazy sort of 
utopian Scottish sort of settler schemes. Wow. See, I'd laugh at that, but I'm a fan of Offaly Hurling. So that like seven brothers on one team would seem somewhat, somewhat family would be underrepresented. If anything. So, so Dave, I want you to remember that this is, these escaped horses essentially are a factor in the gaucho culture, right? Okay. Gaucho, keep gaucho in your head. So we fast forward about 300 years, right? Argentina becomes independent and Juan Manuel de Rosas, the governor of Buenos Aires, he essentially seizes power, Jonathan, right? Yes, and he's the sort of the first of these um, sort of strong men leaders, the, the, the great caudichos. And he's sort of a figure who who uh, dominates the Argentinian political mentality. I mean, the myth of the conquering kind of hero, the conquering strongman is... It's huge, yeah, yeah. And, and you see that played out in football. It, I mean, there's a whole series of, I mean, particularly the number fives, the, the big sort of domineering central midfielders. So people like Antonio Ratin, uh, who was the captain of the 66 World Cup famous, he was sent off at Wembley in the quarterfinal. Uh, or something like Daniel Passarella, you know, centre-back, who was the, the captain of 78. They would be seen as cadichos, as, as right. these sort of very tough, charismatic leaders. He's a, a basically a, a warlord, I suppose. That that's a kind of a warlord, is yeah. another word for warlord. Yeah. And he's promoting this idea of you know this the gaucho culture and 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 Argentina is a big agricultural ranched country, shall we? Well, say. you you've, you've got to got to remember as well. Argentina is not a fixed entity at this point. So when it gains independence, uh, July 9th, uh, eighteen sixteen, uh, gains independence from Spain. It's really just Buenos Aires and, and the immediate area around that. The border's being constantly pushed south and west. There's essentially a genocide against indigenous people, against the Mapuche uh, and, and various other groups. And it, it slowly is pushed west of the Andes and south, all the way eventually down to Tierra del Fuego. Um, and that land is the Pampas. And the reason okay. they want that land is it's incredibly good to farm on. Mm. Uh, but the problem is they don't actually have enough people. So one of the reasons that you get... The, the, this, this sort of huge influx of immigrants is they're desperate for Europeans to go there and farm the land. So there's the famous case of a group of, I can't remember how many it is, but like a few dozen Welsh nationalists uh, mm-hmm. who, who are desperate to get out of Wales. Patagonia, isn't it? Yeah, they, they write off to various governments around the world saying, we're really good at sheep farming. Can we have some land in your country? And the Argentines write back and go, would you mind killing some indigenous people while you're doing it? <laughs> and they were like... No. Oh, my have God. They, have they got guns? No, they haven't got guns. Oh, great. That sounds brilliant. What year was this, Jonathan? This was 1850s. So you have a uh, settlement of Haitan in, in Patagonia, which even now, your Welsh is, is commonly spoken there. That's incredible. And, and actually, Gabriel Batistuta is... Uh, I, I mean, there was a rumour went around he spoke Welsh. I don't think that's true. But his family, come, or part of his family, comes from Haitan. If he pops up on that Ryan Reynolds documentary from Reynolds, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's true. I would love to hear Argentinian Spanish, which has its own very particular sound, spoken with a Welsh accent. If yeah, anybody yeah, can yeah. do that, I would, I would pay to hear that. But, but yeah, they are drawing people from all, all over the place. So if you, if you read Bruce Chapman's book in Patagonia, it's basically him going around Patagonia talking to people who've gone there to set up a new life. And, and I think one of the great attractions of Argentina it is a tabula rasa. You're setting up your own society, but you can also totally reinvent yourself if you want to. And when, when you mentioned that barbed wire, well, first of all, wire was introduced and then barbed wire is introduced. Is that the thing that, you know, that leads to enclosed areas? It's easier to control that. The decline of the, the gaucho culture, but a real, you know, kind of they're sticking their head over the parry to Britain and Britain goes, oh, okay. No, oh, we need to send people over there. Oh, they can refrigerate beef now. Let's, 
That's it was Britain's eye turn, shall we say it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's quite as cynical as that makes it sound. I mean, it probably was for some people, but you you have, I mean, it goes on for sort of thirty or forty years, the Argentinian civil war between the Unitarians who think that everything should be centrally controlled from Buenos Aires and the Federalists who want a series of, you know, a, a loose sort of collection of states. And a huge political force in this are the gauchos, because if you have these huge estancias, these huge ranches with you know, hundreds and hundreds of cattle, uh, which is what the pampas are, are best suited to, you have to control them somehow. And, and so you need the gaucho and you need his, his expertise. And so the, the gauchos have this incredible political clout by the mid-19th century. But then uh, an English guy called Richard Newton introduces wire fencing. And that's, I think, 1844, he introduces it. And then within 20 or 30 years, you get barbed wire. And, and once you have wire fences, you just put a fence around your cattle. They eat the grass, you move the fence, and the cattle move to, to the fresh grass. You can also do selective breeding. And so even the farms who want to do it the old way, economically, it makes no sense. They're, 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 because they're, their cattle are not producing the same yield of beef as the ones who have the fences and have the selective breeding. Wow. So the gauchos as a political force are, are, are neutered. Um, and the reason this is, is hugely significant in, in terms of Argentine self-image, first of all, the Argentinian, the great, great epic of Argentinian literature is uh, Martin Fierro, written by Jose Hernandez, uh, comes out in two volumes in the 1870s. And, and it, it's actually about the decline of the gaucho culture. And it's a very ambiguous book. I think it's a brilliant work about the violence and, and, and compromises of the gaucho world. But of course, nobody actually reads great works of literature <laughs> and people just get excited. Oh, gauchos. And so <laughs> the British sort of from the mid 1870s, Argentina is never part of the, the formal empire, but it's certainly part of the informal empire because the British control the banking system and the, they, they control these refrigerated trains, carriages. Uh, and so they begin exporting beef. There's uh, huge profits to be made in that. It's Argentinian corned beef that basically feeds, feeds the British army during the First World War. Um, but by the time of the First World War, the British have begun to retreat. And you see this in football that um, the well, British people take football over. A league is set up in the early 1890s. It's the first league outside of, of, of Britain to be, to be established. Uh, Lowe doesn't turn professional till uh, 1931. Uh, and they're all expat teams, all British expat teams. Okay. Who, who, so, you, for instance, one of the teams in, I think it's the second championship, is a Scottish plumbing firm who's gone over to do the sewage. No way. Uh, called, I think they're called <laughs> Bowson and Pearson, something, something like that. Right. And it's just, yeah, they, they work for the people who are putting in the, the sewers. Um, so it's pretty amateurish. But then alumni, this team with the Browns, that they dominate the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, and then 1913, Racing are the first Argentinian Argentinian championships. So in, in Argentina, they talk about Argentinian football having two births. It has the British birth, then it has the Argentinian birth. So the British are, are, are sort of, because of events in Europe, they, they, they're starting to retreat by then. You're also getting far greater, um, uh, far greater sense of, a far greater desire in Argentina for um, self-determination, to be autonomous. Uh, but, you know, they... They've got rid of the Spanish yoke. They don't want to just impose a British yoke instead. Uh, and you see a uh, move towards universal male suffrage, which comes in uh, the 1916 election. is the first to have universal male suffrage in Argentina uh, after the huge boycott of the 1912 election. Uh, but there's then this, this question as a British retreat. 
people start saying, well, hang on, what, what is Argentina? This new country, has been around roughly 100 years by then, but what is it? Uh, you look at the makeup of Argentina, and obviously nobody pays any heed to the indigenous people. They're, they're sort of, yeah. I mean, partly because they've been wiped out, but nobody listens to them anyway. So the, the eve of the First World War got a population of roughly two and a half million, of whom uh, a million of a Spanish descent, 800,000 of Italian descent, 400,000 Northern European Jews, 400,000 Arabs, uh, 40,000 Germans, 30,000 French, 30,000 British and Irish. Uh, so they're people from very, very different backgrounds, very, very different ideas about how society should be run. So there's this sort of open debate, chaos Akatinidad, what, what is it to be Argentinian? What is Argentinian-ness? The great poet of the age, Leopold Lagunas, gives a series of lectures at the Odeon Theatre in Buenos Aires in 1913, which are then collected, you can buy them, this book called El Pachador, uh, where, he, where he asks this question. He says, the soul of the Argentinian is the gaucho. And that's a romantic idea, but it's also linked to, to Martin Fierro, to this, this epic poem. But it, you can see the attraction that these are the people who've pushed the frontier back. Uh, they're, they're very, you know, cowboys are romantic, they're exciting. They have this solitariness, this self-reliance, this virtuosity. They dress quite flamboyantly, at least in the popular imagination. So you then get these gaucho clubs set up. And you're even now, the, the grilling of meat, the, the asados, the big, big barbecues, the key part of Argentinian social life. One of the constants in Argentinian football seems to be, if I can get the pronunciation right, pibe. Yeah. Maybe define it for us and then tell us how it links to gaucho culture. Yeah. So the, the, the pibe is the, the urchin child of the, of the, of the streets. Uh, so urchin is probably the best, the best direct translation, boy, urchin. But because there's, yeah, there's, there's this sort of sense that you can't, you, you can't place a gaucho in an urban environment and have it be anything other than ridiculous. And Argentina is, is urbanizing rapidly. And one of the things you see um, post-First World War, the four nations that really rise up to, to sort of challenge British uh, domination of football are Argentina, Uruguay, Hungary, Austria. And what all four have in common is that they're all urbanizing rapidly and they all have one major city. So Vienna, Budapest, Montevideo, Buenos Aires. And so they all have these, these vacant lots um, where kids play football. It turns out it's a very fertile ground to play football. These, these very tight, compact spaces, um, very uneven ground. You have games of you know, 20, 30 a side. There's no space. So what's prioritized is tight technical control. Mm. And so by the early 1920s, there's this idea in El Grafico, the, the great football magazine of, of Argentina, which by that point is selling over 100,000 copies a week across South America. And they start to ask Keir Sakatinidad, and they say, actually, if you're looking for the spirit of self-reliance and virtuosity that you see in the gaucho, in an urban environment, you find it in the P-Bay because he's got to be able to look after himself in these games. There's no teacher there to blow a whistle. And they realize then this is in contradistinction to the British game. People who learned the game from the British in Argentina learned it on these huge playing fields, big right. grassy pitches where running is the key. And there's a teacher there with a whistle. So if it gets out of hand, the teacher stops it. In these street games, on, on the potreros, as they call them in South America, the grunts, as they call them in Central Europe, there is no teacher. You've got to be able to look after yourself. So the two things that are prized are virtuosity, technical skill, but also cunning, streetwiseness, that capacity to put in the elbow when you need to. Doesn't that like literally sound like you're describing Diego Maradona? Yeah, and that, that's yeah. you get you get this extraordinary description in 1928 from Boricotto, the editor of El Grafico. So if, if I can just find that and read it out to you, 
Um, so yeah, he says if you were going to raise a statue to the inventor of dribbling, he says it should depict a bay with a dirty face, a mane of hair rebelling against the comb, with intelligent, roving, trickster and persuasive eyes, and a sparkling gaze that seemed to hint at a picaresque laugh that does not quite manage to form in his mouth, full of small teeth that might be worn down through eating yesterday's bread, his trousers with a few roughly sewn patches, his vest with Argentinian stripes, with a very low neck, with very many holes, eaten out by the invisible mice of use. So if you if you give that description to somebody and say, who is that? Yeah. A hundred percent of people would say Diego Maradona. Yeah. And that's 59 years, sorry, 49 years before he made his international debut. And that's why when Maradona arrives, he comes with the force of prophecy. This isn't just a great player. He is the great Argentinian player. And of course, then, you, what is his greatest game? It's against the English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the two goals, one is cunning and one is this great virtuosity. And that is the Gaucho's revenge. Wow. The same thing played out when Diego Simeone got um, David Beckham sent off. There was this, you know, this cute, urchin sort of uh, cynical, but can look after himself guy on the ground. And then the noble English guy who's playing by the rules gets sent off somewhat naively. I mean, I'm not going to comment on how happy or not we were in Ireland about that. <laughs> but is, is, is that why Messi wouldn't be defined in the same way as Maradona? He wouldn't be held in the same love as Maradona. Is that because of the PBA legendary status and the identification with the PBA? Yeah, I think that's part of it. There's, there's also Maradona is very much an Argentinian type physically. You know, he's short, he's squat. His, his head is slightly larger than, you know, slightly too large for his body. Yeah. Thick, yeah. massive, dark hair. So he himself, you see, he's partly of Italian stock, partly of um, Guarani stock. So he's, you know, he's partly indigenous. Uh, I think, I think quarter indigenous. Uh, but he, he described himself, and this is Evita's description of, of the people she was trying to appeal to as un capacita negro. So a little blackhead. Um, and, and, Carlos Tevez fits the same time. Yeah. Omar Sivori, the great play, played for Juventus uh, in, in the 60s, uh, well, 50s and 60s. Um, and, and so that that is sort of seen as being sort of, yeah, that is the true Argentinian. Whereas Messi, although obviously he had to have all his hormone treatment and everything, but he's a little bit taller, a little bit slimmer. He's better nourished. His dad was a was a manager in a factory yeah, you know, he wasn't. He didn't grow up in a slum. You know, he wasn't rich by any means, but he, he wasn't living in intense poverty in the way that Maradona was. And so there's a sense that Messi isn't quite truly representative of Argentina. And the fact he leaves so yeah, early, yeah, is is the fact that he he came so quickly to Spain uh, to obviously yeah. become the player that he is. And and thank thankfully, you know, that he did all that. But it does kind of remove a little bit of that Argentinian identification, doesn't it? Yeah, and yeah, the fact he, he he has never played there, and I think I think now, but basically since he retired, you know, in 2016 he announced his retirement from international football after the second year in a row they lost to Chile uh, on, on penalties in the final of the Copa America, and the moment he said right, I'm done, was a moment I just even thought, oh, hang on, yeah. that's probably not a good thing, <laughs> and that's when they 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 felt the love for him, and so you know on, on the subter on the, on the metro in, in Buenos Aires. They had messages saying, you know, please come back, Leo. And uh, you know, a month later, he said, oh, ah, okay, I'll come back. Yeah. And, and then you know, last year, he finally won his first senior trophy with Argentina, the first trophy Argentina won since 1993. And I, I think it's also, you know, when things go wrong and you're looking for a scapegoat, it's very easy to say, ah, oh, you're messy. Is he, does he really feel it in the way that, that Diego did? 
Um, but, you know, and it was always like, oh, he doesn't sing the anthem. But, you know, hundreds of players don't sing yeah. the anthem. But you know, his accent is Argentinian still. You know, even though two-thirds of his life he's lived in Europe. His wife is from Rosario, his childhood sweetheart. His favorite music, his favorite foods, his favorite films are Argentinian. He lives in a little Argentinian bubble wherever he goes. And I think people now have accepted that. And you've also, you know, the, the comparison of Maradona is, is vaguely absurd in, in that regard, in that Maradona never played in the Copa America. He just couldn't be bothered. I mean, he partly couldn't be bothered, partly he was banned, partly he was injured. But he never played in the Copa America, whereas Messi's never missed a game for Argentina. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't get the credit for the fact that he's quite physically brave, as evidenced by the game of the mask. Dave, you're going to like this. Jonathan, what's the game of the mask? So this was uh, April 2003, I think. So he was he was 15, playing for Barcelona's under-15 side. Uh, I think they they certainly went unbeaten through an entire league season. They might have won every game. And they wrapped up the title beating Espanyols, Barcelona's city rivals. Uh, and Messi got an elbow in the face and fractured his cheekbone. And eight days later, they met Espanyol in the cup final. And there was, oh, Messi can't play, blah, blah, blah. And then they give him a mask to play in, you know, one of those, you know, like Phantom of the Opera style masks. Uh, and I think he borrowed it from uh, Carlos uh, Puyol, didn't he? Yeah, so, yeah, so, so Puyol had worn it, you know, and obviously Puyol's a much bigger man. Yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't really fit and it's blocking his vision. And he gets the ball halfway through the first half, it's nil-nil, sets off on this run, rips the mask off, chucks it to the side, carries on his run, scores, gets two more, the three love at half time, which he's taken off having done his job. So, yeah, that's that's the physical courage of him, even at 15. So if we can trace this all the way back to Neil's original claim then, which is that, you know, the, the cattle breeding uh, gave rise to this. So if the kind of simplistic, you know, timeline is the importance of the gaucho culture, uh, the selective cattle breeding to farm the, the, the pampas in the, in, the, in the right way, uh, leading to this kind of birth of this Argentinian identity, which then fed into the Argentinian football teams as opposed to the British Argentinian football teams. And that gave us the style and the, the intensity of the Argentinian game. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's important uh, is that this is totally self-conscious. Um, and because, because this discussion of Chaos Acatinidad is so live, you're one of the very few things that, that unite all these disparate people who make up Argentina um, well, one is that they all listen to the radio. So you, you've you talked about tango already, haven't you? Yeah. So yeah. The, the two things they're listening to are broadcasts from the tango halls and football commentaries. So football pulls the nation together. And when, when there's a team wearing the blue and white stripes playing against Uruguay or Brazil or Chile, all those Italians, Spaniards, you know, whatever, they all want that team in the blue and white stripes to win. And so Argentina, the football team, becomes if way more profoundly than, than the vast majority of countries a representation of the nation. And therefore, the way they play is very directly an expression of national character, national, national style, in a, in a self-conscious way. Yeah, that, that's literally how the players are thinking about it as they go onto the pitch. So has there always been a swing between, I think in your book you would describe it as, um, it's now described as Menottiism versus Bellardoism. So kind of mm. progressive football versus uh, anti-football. Has there always been a swing back and forth, you know, for the last 80 years based on, well, various different prevalent trends? 
Um, I wouldn't say for 80 years. So, so Argentinian football um, turns professional in 1931. And uh, there's a belief then that their football is the best in the world. Even though Uruguay have won the previous two Olympics and the World Cup in, in, in the second Olympic final and in the World Cup final beating Argentina. But, you know, they're Uruguay, they're, they're tiny. You know, nobody in Argentina really takes them that seriously. Um, uh, you know, it'd be like a, an English person's sort of how, how we would regard Scotland. Not me, but <laughs> other English people. Um, yeah, okay, you might have beaten us, but come on, be serious. Yeah. And, and their league is, is very much based on self-expression, individuality, tricks. It's based on this P-Bay culture. And that endures really through to 1958. And uh, one of the reasons it endures is that after the 1930 World Cup, Argentina don't send a professional side to a World Cup until 1958. So after, the, I mean, this is a very tedious debate to go that occupies Argentina for a long time. But after the league turns professional, there's a big split and it's the amateur authority that has the right to send the team to the right. World Cup. So in 34, they, they go to Italy, lose 3-2 to Sweden. They don't bother to send a team in 38 because they can't afford to. And then after Peron's taken power, he's seen what happened in Brazil in 1950 when they lost to Uruguay in the last game of that World Cup. And there's huge street demonstrations and supposedly people are throwing themselves out of, out of windows in despair. And Peron is terrified of unleashing that kind of passion. And so Peron you know, leads him into isolationism, which you know, absolutely maps his economic policy. Argentina don't sign up to, to GATT in 1946 with catastrophic. Yeah. You have a general agreement on talents and trades. Yeah, which which sort of you know, leads to the economic meltdown in '55, which leads to him being ousted. Um, so they win the, the Campeonato Sudamericano, which is the, the forerunner of the Copa America in, in '57, playing this beautiful individualistic football, and they go to the World Cup in Sweden in '58, believing that they are one of the best teams in the world, and they get beaten six-one by Czechoslovakia, and they realise we're old, we're slow, we're fat, we don't know what we're doing. And it leads to this immediate backlash. And the consequence of that is what we now know as anti-football. So Estudiantes, who come from La Plata, so it's only 35 miles or so from Buenos Aires, but there'd never been a non-Buenos Aires team winning the league in the professional era until uh, Estudiantes. And they they do it playing you know, very, very physical, um, very violent, um, very cynical football. In that team is Carlos Bilado. Um, and the coach is, is Osvaldo Zabaldia, who, who I actually think is a great tactician, but with a very, very dark side. And he, you know, he, he learns a lot from Europe. Uh, you know, he, he gets videos imported of, of what the best Soviet teams are doing. And wow. he, he learns pressing from them. So he's very advanced tactically, but he's, he's also that. I mean, Bilado, you know, there's all kinds of stories about him. So the one he's kind of admitted to is he would go on the pitch with pins and stab opponents he was marking with the pins. But he was all, he's a, I mean, Bilardo's an amazing figure. So he was a qualified gynecologist. And supposedly through that, he was able to get information about other players' wives, which he would use to, to bait them during oh games. Oh, my no. God. God, that is trash talk at a different level, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a story. We must preface this by saying, I do not know if this is true. Okay. But the story is, well, I, I know that Roberto Perfumo, who's an international centre-back, uh, turns around in the game and smashes him in the face and gets sent off. And the rumour is that's because Bilardo had said, oh, I heard about your wife's, uh, wife's little sister down there. Hope that's cleared up. Oh, my oh, God. God. 
Uh, but, and he was also running his parents' furniture business at the same time. He was an amazing man. Like, phenomenal energy. <laughs> uh, yeah. where, where did he get the time to be such a scumbag? It's <laughs> remarkable. Um, and then, yeah, there's then a backlash against the backlash. So uh, at Huracan in, in 74, uh, they win the league under Cedar Luis Minotti, who's uh, a former communist, which in a country about to go into right-wing dictatorship is a an interesting position to be in. <laughs> um, he's sort of very charismatic, great womanizer, smokes constantly, preaches this sort of, we must return the game to the people. We must go back to the game of the 30s. And he remarkably, given the government, is put in charge for 78. Um, and I think he was a little bit more um, pragmatic, shall we say, than, than his public image necessarily always right. suggested. But they, they win the World Cup. Um by 80, he's still in charge in 82, where um, Argentina wouldn't train till 3 p.m. because he had so many late nights out, he just didn't want to get up before lunch. <laughs> um, so, which is one of the things that go wrong. For, I mean, the, the main thing that goes wrong for Argentina in 82 is yeah, the, the invasion of the Falklands that happened that, that April. Um, so the World Cup begins uh, towards the end of June. Uh, and there's, there's only two, two channels on Argentinian TV at the time. So one of them is showing entirely propaganda about the war and footage from other wars that seem to show Argentina winning quite convincingly. And the other channel is just showing reruns of the 1978 World Cup. Wow. And so Maradona talks about this quite openly, that they get to Spain. And obviously they can read the papers because they're all in Spanish. And they were playing the opening game of the World Cup against Belgium. And so the three or four days beforehand, they'd been picking up the Spanish papers going, hang on, we're, 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 we're losing, losing the war. What? And then sort of Maradon talks about this sort of dawning realization. If they're lying about that, what else are they lying about? And suddenly, you know, the, the, the leftist claims of 30,000 disappeared and all these murders, all the detention centers, the, the torture. Suddenly the squad's like, oh, maybe, maybe that is true. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they, they play very badly against Belgium, lose 1-0. They, they scrape through to the second round where they lose 3-1 uh, to Brazil and Maradon is sent off. And they then lose 2-1 to Italy. Yeah, the, the morale is clearly knocked sideways by yeah. this recognition of our government's been lying to us systematically. Sorry, well, I say it's a Minotti. So, yeah, you, they then, the two, Bellardo then takes over, is in charge in 86 when, when they do win the World Cup again. So, the two World Cup winning managers, Minotti, the, the, the sort of philosopher prince of this old fashioned attacking, individualistic, stylish football, and Bellardo, this sort of cynical anti football. And yeah, I think. From then, managers tend to say, yeah, Menotista or Biladista. And, and, and actually, the person who changes that is, begins to change that is Bielsa. And Bielsa says, no, I, I'm, I'm not sure if he ever used the term third way, but he, he definitely says, yeah, I've, I've spent eight years studying Menotti and eight years studying Bilardo, and I am the, the fusion of the two. Jonathan, it's been. A pleasure to talk to you. The book, if people want to see the, uh, if they want to read the, a more in-depth um, look at Argentinian football, the book is called Angels with Dirty Faces, The History of Argentinian Football. We didn't even get to Tarquin, Dave, which was a famous bull <laughs> in the 18th century. Uh, yeah, so, so Tarquin century. was the, uh, in, I, th I think 1876, Tarquin was, if you just measure it by how often his name is mentioned on a front page of a newspaper, yeah. Tarquin was the biggest celebrity in Argentina. <laughs> and he was this massive British bull who was brought over to, to boost meat yields. 
by shagging his way around the estancias. <laughs> See, Dave, I told you you'd like it. Yeah, we there's a lot There's a lot to get into. We didn't get to... This is how detailed Jonathan's books are. River Plate's first ever opponent included a man who would go on to win the Nobel Prize for discovering the role of pituitary hormones in regulating <laughs> blood sugar in mammals. <laughs> This, this, to be fair, their first game was against the Faculty of Medicine. It's yeah, not quite as absurd as There's some things you need to ruin with more detail, and there's some things you just need to leave just sit. <laughs> uh, my favourite headline in the book, there's a headline about Messi when he, go, when he goes to uh, Barcelona first, I think. And uh, it says, Dave, he's a very special little leper. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, now you should what? explain that, Jonathan. <laughs> yes. So the reason for that is that... Um, he was at Newell's Old Boys, was his club before that, and their nickname is the Lepers. Okay, uh, well, I still need to explain The reasons that. which I'll explain in the book. They oh, played, sorry, we'll get they, to the book, okay. There was a match, again, and the money was to be raised for a leprosy charity, and another team pulled out, and Newell, Newell's Old Boys took the place. Right, gotcha. The other team, gotcha. If, if I'm correct, Jonathan, is that right? I sounds false. I can't remember to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he did write the book a long time ago. Jonathan Wilson, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, a William. Cheers, thank you. Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Normally I say to you, Dave, have I justified Why Would You Tell Me That? But Jonathan Wilson is absolutely brilliant. Oh, never meet your heroes. I'm so glad I met him. What an absolute legend. What His ability to talk through politics culture society and of course football is just phenomenal but what a picture it paints though of how football is so ingrained in a society and i know some people may not care about football and i completely understand that and i respect that but it is if for, for most countries it is so ingrained in the identity of the country the, the social class, particularly the working class, and how that has developed over the last 150 yeah, years. It's can, just amazing. You can use football to, even if you're not interested in sport and football, you can use football as a lens that you can look at that society. And I think if you look at the 1990 World Cup in Ireland and the advent of, of us kind of feeling confident about ourselves, that was tied into success to a greater or lesser degree in football. We didn't even talk about Juan Perón. We didn't really talk about um, how Evita used it in, in, in football in certain ways. There's a great encapsulation of what he was talking about there. Gambetta uh, is the style of dribbling in Argentina, right? Uh, yeah. And that is derived from gaucho literature so even the words would bolster john uh, jonathan wilson's argument um you know what also he was saying you know the pb you know what that reminded me of johnny giles often talks about street football being lost and that yeah. he played football in a square like that and and the last one i can think of would be kind of wayne rooney who played football on the streets and therefore developed this kind of technical ability that you don't necessarily get on the playing fields of rugby or Eton. Yeah, I, I'm a football coach of young boys and girls. And I, like often we'll kind of set set them off for the summer and go, you know, listen, make sure you're playing football all summer long. Don't forget, like, you know, we want you to come back a bit better next season than you are this season, whatever. But I always tell them the story of, of Maradona. That Maradona basically in his garage had effectively this really small courtyard it was some, whatever way the houses were built there was a little t tiny courtyard so all it was was four walls and it looked straight up and there was the sky above him and he had a door in and i think a door out and that was it and he went in there with a tennis ball and maradona would kick the tennis ball off the walls 
and never let it touch the ground for an hour. The ball would not touch the ground for an hour. And this was when he was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I say to the kids, look, you don't have to find yourself in a tiny <laughs> courtyard bashing a tennis ball off a wall. But if you want to play like the best players play this summer, you have to kick a ball off a wall and take your touch and go and do it again and do it again and do it a hundred times and do it when you're tired and do it when you don't want to do it. And in fairness to the kids, they do, they love coming back and telling you the stories of, you know, I passed it 50 times against the wall yesterday. You know what I mean? They love it. Yeah, and then was thrown out with a squash court. <laughs> it's possibly the only Diego Maradona story that you can tell children. <laughs> and then one time in Italy, he had a fake penis, and that's how he got through all the drugs tests. Anyway, have a great summer, children. <laughs> Well, we are very excited, ladies and gentlemen, because next time you hear us, we will be talking to you from our first ever live podcast. I'm so buzzing about this. We're going to sit in a room with other Why Would You Tell Me Thatters who are as obsessed with these weird, amazing things all around the world as we are. And yeah, we're going to have our first ever live episode for your ears next Wednesday. So don't miss it. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Double Dr. Lara Dungan with myself and Neil talking about Graylin the hunger hormone. And if you want Dr. Dungan to answer a specific question on the hunger hormone, Graylin, just um, DM us. DM us on our Instagram accounts. At yep, Dave, at Dave Dave FM, FM, at, at Neil Delmer Delmer Comedy. Comedy. Can we do the last one together? One, two, three. At, at why would you, why tell, would you me tell me that? Oh, we're not like a boy band at all. They're, they're much better at talking in unison than we are. I did get up off a stool and I'm wearing a white suit. <laughs> Key <anybody> change. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll see you in the live one in a week's time. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.